welcome to the Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Just been screwing up my openings and closings on every podcast recently. But that, that's what you expect from me here on the Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimber, which I've already said, but I'm saying again to sound slightly more professional. Uh, this is the Cricket Podcast where we answer questions from the audience. Uh, so thank you to everyone who has sent uh, questions in. Um, we obviously start with the people on Patreon. If you're desperate for a question to be answered and you're watching live in the YouTube, Super Chats are the best way to go, but I'll try and go through anything that takes my interest. Uh, but we start with the Patreon people. Please, if you can support us on Patreon, it's a great way. It gives you access to this, gives you access to our Discord channel. Um, we also have a, like a private Q&A. Uh, there are levels where you can actually have um, chats, uh, a podcast come without ads, all these sorts of things. There's probably more, but oh, the emailer. You get the emailer on certain levels as well, uh, which is goodareas.co. If uh, we've we've gone to a new website, um, a little bit slicker and, and working a little bit better for us. So uh, thank you to everyone who's been to the new site. Uh, Christopher says, which first-class structures do you think help the national side the most and which hinder the side the most? Um, uh, well, the West Indies would probably hinder the most because it's so short and, you know, it's all compacted in one area and there isn't a lot of it. Um, so it's not an ideal one. England has a lot of advantages and a lot of disadvantages. I think it does grind out their cricketers a little bit. Just so much cricket. So many days of the week are played, uh, have cricket. But for an overseas player who only does that once or twice, it allows you to get, you know, play a lot of cricket and really work on your game quickly. But it doesn't work as well for the actual players, unfortunately, themselves. I think the South Africa and Australian, I, I like South Africa's structure of having the sort of provisional and then the a franchise level. Um, and with South Africa's wickets getting a little bit more varied, you know, spin coming in a little bit more, um, perhaps that also, um, gives them a bit of an advantage. Australia now plays some of their cricket on outgrounds. That second 11 competition, I, I think, I think Australia cricket was at its absolute best when the second 11 competition was really, really strong. And you had like 31 year old, you know, bank workers still trying to play one game for Victoria. Um, and I don't think it's as strong, but it's a really good structure. And also the one thing I would say about the Australian structure and the South African structure and probably the New Zealand structure is that they very, they very much mimic how you play test matches. You know, there are gaps in between, um, which allows for everyone's bodies to, you know, um, uh, recover a little bit more. Um, whereas some of the other, first-class tournaments are a little bit more packed into tighter schedules at times. Um, and so you don't always get that chance. So yeah, probably Australia, South Africa, New Zealand off the top of my head. I don't think, I, none of them are perfect. The perfect situation, of course, would be for you to have like a permanent A team and maybe even a B team traveling around um, at all times. You know, uh, the B team would be maybe, let's say, under 26, under 27 with a couple of senior players dotted in. And the A team would just be whatever the, the, the next best team is. But I'm not sure anyone's ever going to be able to do that again uh, with the way that cricket is heading with franchise leagues and everything else. But that would be the more I ideal thing because most players are pretty good at playing at home, right? What you really want to do is train them to play away from home. And I would say that at its best, that was one thing that the West Indies cricket did very well, just because their pitches are so varied from place to place, um, that you got experience on dust bowls, you got experience on on low bounce, you got experience on hyper bounce, you got experience on green tops, you know, all these different, and flat, a lot of flat wickets as well. Yeah, a lot of good things in, in traditional West Indies cricket, but, you know, it's just probably not enough games all kind of in one part of the year um, is not ideal. Cam says, what's your opinion on the term boundary? I always took it to include fours and sixes, but I feel like some are now using it only for fours. Uh, three boundaries and one six and an eight. <laughs> it's a fantastically nerdish question, Cam. Um, yeah, I still think it covers sixes. Um, you still hear the... I do hear the term boundary sixes sometimes. And I suppose if you have got one word that kind of covers both. Um, and, and, you know, from a statistic... If you're asking from a statistical point of view, we probably shouldn't have one word that covers both Um and even, you know, when I first started doing numbers in cricket, uh, I think I would lump fours and sixes in together because I thought of them as boundaries rather than separate. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you that in general, I think now boundary is becoming more of a term just for fours, which, you know, I mean, language changes, you know, <laughs> um, a, a maximum, and a, uh, which isn't quite a maximum because, of course, you can have run a three and have four overthrows. But um you know, a maximum 
might become the word that we use more as the sort of the word for six and, and a boundary might become the word that we use more for four. Um, or we might just use the word six <laughs> for sixes. Um, I don't know, but it's, it, it, I see where you're going with this and it's a fantastically great question, but I don't know if I had a great answer for it. GD says, is I being dropped more due to his back spasms or they just want to try DDP on Asafaraz? Uh, do you think a guy quad should have been included in the squad? No, I think they've, I mean, you could have also had guy quad. There's heaps of players that they could have just whipped in. I felt from the way it was reported that he was dropped. I then, and which I think was a mistake. We, we may not get a clear answer on this until afterwards. Um, if he has been dropped, I would say, for me, that's probably an error. Um, but if they think England's worked him out, then maybe, you know, he just needs a break. I, I don't have an issue with that. But I don't, I don't want the IR experiment to be finished because he didn't make runs in, two t in, you know, in the first two tests. I think we know how good IR can be. Um, so, and I don't think he batted poorly enough for him to be dropped from those two tests either. If they wanted different kinds of players, I think that's fine. And if the back is also part of it, again, I, I don't have any issues um, uh, with that. You know, back spasms are awkward for a batter. Um, uh, not an easy thing to play through, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So uh, I hope he hasn't just been dropped, dropped. And I think even if he has been dropped, I would like to hope that it's just a thing of, don't worry, we'll bring you back very soon. This isn't, you know, you don't have to go back and work your way. We know how good you are. Um, because I actually think his best case of him being developed is within the system, not outside of it. Richard says, we are approaching 10 years since Stuart Binney's glorious test debut. <laughs> Did I cover that test? I might have covered that test. Um, Stuart Binney actually played club cricket around the corner from me. Um, I don't, and I can't imagine there are that many Indian players. Yeah, thumbs up, Apple. Um, I can't imagine there are that many Indian players of his level that have gone like from the IPL to playing club cricket in Beckenham. Maybe, I'm trying to think of any others, um, certainly in current day. Uh, what current test sides could really use a Stuart Binney? Um, who could use a Stuart Binney? I mean, I know it's probably a joke question, but I want, let, let's just have a look at his record just quite quickly in first class cricket. So first class cricket, he averages 34 with the bat and he averages 32 with the ball. And he's bowling medium pace. So would he be a handy player in, say, Bangladesh? They've already got two spin bowling all-rounders. Um, they maybe want a guide if the ball's swinging a little bit or, you know, nipping around a little bit to come in. That sort of, that almost that, I mean, the thing with Stuart Binney, he's almost that traditional kind of Indian player, right? And, and maybe slightly better if you look at those numbers altogether. But you know, the kind of player that India would use quite a bit of that second or third seam bowler who really gave them a little bit of versatility with the bat as well. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think Stuart Binney in Bangladesh makes sense to me. I'm trying to think of another side that would need a Stuart Binney. Ireland kind of have Stuart Binney type players already, don't they? Um, Zimbabwe probably don't need it. They have all-round talent already. Um, yeah. We, what about historically great sides? Well, I mean, surely he slots in at three for the Invincibles, Stuart, Stuart Binney, doesn't he? I probably should have started with that joke. Nadika says, do we keep his read the ball out of the hand like batters do? Yes, but it is slightly... Uh, yes and no, but they're not always looking for the exact same clues. But if you have a look at wicket keepers, most wicket keepers will pick a, a, a wrong end of a bowler that they are used to. So yeah, they are picking it out of the hands, but not all wicket keepers look at, at it out of the hand the same way that a batter would, which is why you sometimes see wicket keepers when they face opposition spinners uh, are not always as good. Um, so I think it, I think it's slightly different. Obviously, I, I know this is going to sound weird, but they are doing a different job. So they are trying to get themselves in a different physical position than a batter. And also they're not, just trying to hit it with a piece of wood that moves around, right? They've got their entire hands, uh, which is slightly different. So I think they read it slightly differently, but there are certainly some wicket keepers who read it very similar to top level batters. And there are other wicket keepers who probably see, um, uh, who, who look at it more along of the line and length and get themselves in the right physical position for each ball, um, rather than, uh, than anything else. But the, the big difference is if you're a wicket keeper, generally, you have kept to this person a lot 
um, if it's a spinner. And so you could pick all the subtle variations that they do already. Um, so you're only looking for one or two clues, whereas if you're a batter, you're probably trying to learn what those clues are. So I do think it's different. I don't know if I've explained that perfectly well, um, but because their jobs are different, I think you look for different things as well. Like you're not worried about being beaten in flight. If you're if you're a um, a wicket keeper, right? So little things like that. You're not worried about your feet going down the wicket. All these sorts of things. Uh, Roger says, "What causes teams to fall apart the way they sometimes do in long series, like England in a few Ashes, India on some tours of um, England and Australia, Australia in India sometimes? Are they just giving up? India in England in 2014 feels like a good example. Uh, the way they were up one nil after two tests and then up uh, and then they weren't batting out 30 overs." I think over. I think the best way of explaining this, Rudra, is that over a long period of time, the better team in those conditions is generally going to win the vast majority of Test series. It's not always going to happen. You can make it make an argument. It probably didn't happen in in the um, series where Australia lost to India um, at home. You can make a, a, another argument that probably England could have outplayed Australia Test for Test in that last Ashes. But over a long period of time, the more that you play, um, the the better team, the better suited players to those conditions are usually going to win out. And I think that's generally what we see in five test series. So that India side in, um, what was it? What'd you say? It was 2014. So I covered that series. I thought they were doing well to hang in there, but I always felt like they were just a, a level below what that, um, that England team was. And eventually the, you know, the England team sort of, you know, pushed their way past them. Um, so I think that's a part of it. I think there's also, Cricket tours are, especially long cricket tours, are just not like anything else. And we have seen, uh, what you're talking about is maybe not quite this, but we have seen the sort of tour from hells where just a couple of things go against you and you realise you've got four, three, two more tests, another month, two more months, three more months in this country. And I think the psycho, I don't think it's teams giving up. I think it, the psychology of it just completely um, does that. And you see that in sporting leagues, right? You know, you see teams where you're just like, this team isn't that bad, but they get behind early and they can't fight back. And, you know, next thing you know, it's just too late and everything is negative. Um, so I think there's certainly elements of that. But I, I think generally it's probably just that the other team was better. And over that period of five tests, it, the better team is going to, you know, unless everything goes against them, you know, 05 Ashes is another, you know, really good example. Generally, the better team is going to win those um, series, but it doesn't always happen. But the series that you're talking about are probably ones where that's what we saw unfurl, would be my guess. Ian says, without the Rebel Tour and the ban, how much more could Colin Croft had achieved for the West Indies? At the time, he was 28 years old, had 125 wickets in 27 tests, an average of 23.3. Obviously, they were not short of good fast bowlers, so he may have had limited opportunities anyway, but his figures for that small amount of tests do stand up to most. Yeah, I mean, the big question for a fast bowler like Colin Croft is he wasn't a particularly skillful bowler, um, and he was relying almost entirely on his athleticism and his speed, um, and does he have a regression Right, you know, we saw in that era. It doesn't happen as much now, but in that era, you know, we saw a lot of bowlers who just weren't. You know, Jeff Thompson, a perfect example of, you know, when he had his athleticism um, and his fast twitch muscle and his shoulder was still in the right place and everything, uh, unplayable. But as he got older, he just becomes, you know, not a regular bowler because he still had the weird action and people still didn't pick him up brilliantly. But he certainly becomes more of a bowler that um, people struggle with rather than you know, getting absolutely hammered with. So I do think that is a big uh, uh, a big part of what could have happened to Colin Croft, especially around that 28 uh, period. And and I think if you compare him to, you know, Patrick Patterson or Jeff Thompson, those are two guys who probably, as they lost that pace, they just didn't have as much of the other stuff. I do think with Patrick Patterson, actually, he, he was misused a little bit. But I certainly think with Jeff Thompson, that wasn't the case. I... I would have to go back and have a look at what Colin Croft did when he did play after that to see whether this, th that um, theory holds up. And if not, he bowled wide on the crease um, at great pace, very, I suppose, like a Makairantini type player with maybe slightly taller than Makairantini, I would have thought. Um, actually, maybe he's around the same height. But Makairantini kind of fell over a little bit, didn't he? But both of them angling the ball back in, every ball's coming at you, you can't get away from it. They, as long as those sorts of guys keep their pace, um, they should always be an issue just because it's a 
it wasn't a very normal style of bowling. Like bowlers were, t- especially in that era, Ian, bowlers were taught get as close to the stumps as possible. And Colin Croft's like, I'm going to get as wide as possible, right? So I do think there is that should have kept him in, in the same way that Tomo's action kept him interesting even when he lost his pace. I think Colin Croft does that. But I would have thought that that average of 23 goes up. That said, what if he matures and, and you know, works out seed movement a little bit better and, you know, maybe adds some swing or controls his accuracy a little bit more? Um, you know, I, so it's a big lost uh, moment for Colin Croft. Uh, you know, anyone who's ever met Colin Croft will, will know just what a you know, nice guy he is. You know, he's the most talkative. If you're a cricket fan and you get the chance to meet Colin Croft, ask him one question and then sit back for two hours as he gives you his life story. So, you know, it's uh, – yeah, he made that decision like a lot of those players did. Some of them, I, I think with Colin Croft, he, he's certainly smart enough uh, to understand the political ramifications. Some of those players didn't understand them and didn't really understand what they were getting themselves into. Um, but it is obviously a shame what happened to Colin Croft. But you're right, Ian. He was a fantastic bowler and um, we didn't see enough of him. Uh, let's have a quick break here. Uh, I'm Jared Kimber and this is The Wagon Wheel. Remember that cricket is a funny game. hundred years before we protected our heads, players looked after their groins. So don't be as stupid as old cricketers and protect your computer today. NordVPN is the protection I use when facing cyber shortfalls or when rights issues try to dismiss me. NordVPN will help you get through the straight bat of any geo blocks so you can watch all the cricket you want. If you need your pitch changed, well, NordVPN can doctor any surface to a new location so that your IP address is set up for you to win. Want to buy an associate cricket shirt from a place that won't ship to your country? Select NordVPN. Want to watch a game on a free stream in another hemisphere? NordVPN. Or if you just want to watch a clip on social media that a cricket board won't allow you to, promote NordVPN to pinch it for you. So if you need a VPN, go Nord. Use nordvpn.com forward slash Kimber to get a huge discount off your Nord VPN plan plus four additional months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. The link is in the show notes. Protect your computer like a cricketer protects its nether region with Nord VPN today. All right, welcome back to the wagon wheel. Remember, if you're watching live on the YouTube, uh, super chats are the best way to go. But there's not many people in the in the chat today, so maybe just sneak in a normal chat and see see. Do you feel lucky? Went a bit Clint Eastwood then, didn't I? Accidentally. James says, "How do spinners disguise their variations?" So, this is a hard one to answer, James, uh, just because every different kind of variation is slightly different. Uh, we know with Sun on Orion, so he bowls uh, uh, with his variations. He quite often has the ball behind his hip, which obviously Sakanda Raza does. That's a kind of more extreme way of doing it. If you are bowling a leg spinner um, compared to a wrong and a lot of it is about the wrist and where it comes out. And so quite often bowlers will try and bowl their wrong and a little bit faster than they bowl a leg spinner because wrong ends come out slower. That's one way that batters pick them. Another one is uh, with, with the, so the sort of traditional way to bowl leg spinner was sort of with, with two fingers on top and, and your, um, I don't know, is that the ring finger? I don't actually know what the fingers are called. Apologies to the world here, but you have your finger on the side, um, uh, your, your fourth finger on the side of the ball. And then that's the one that kind of puts the, leg spin uh, rotations on the ball. And so obviously for a wrongen, it does actually, even though the wrist is coming over they're, and there's similarities, wrongen sort of more coming out the back of the hand with that say, uh, with that grip. Whereas if you, if you have the ability to actually hold the ball in a slightly different way, when you bowl the wrongen, you can still see roughly the same amount of ball um, by using, that's, I think that's the Abdul Qadir ball, which is called the finger wrongen. And then the other side of that is if you don't want to lose as much pace when you're bowling the wrongen, you bowl it out, uh, rather than holding it in that big, big grip I showed you before, you will hold it in more of a, a grip with your smaller fingers off the end so that you don't take as much, um, pace off the ball so it still will spin back a little bit and again the batter can see more of the ball rather than seeing the back of your hand so you're trying to bowl a wrong one without showing the back of your hand right and so um that's kind of that's the major decept- deceptive ball within it so you've got different grips you've got different speeds that you can bowl you've got different angles that your wrist can come over for a wrong one as well um so like the the sort of the sort of the one that a club spinner would bowl you can almost see the, the ball coming over the back of the hand. Let me do that 
better for the camera. You can almost see the ball coming over the back of the hand like that. Whereas actually, if you look at a really good wrong and bowler, um, they will try and make it so it looks like it's coming out the side of the hand. And in fact, some of these modern bowlers who bowl a lot more wrong ones like Rehan Ahmed and, and Ravi Bishnoi, their leg spinner actually looks more like a wrong one. So they're trying to disguise it the other way, right? Um, off spinners... <laughs> You know, traditionally, off spinners would bowl that arm ball, but that's actually quite an easy ball to to uh, pick. Um, but what they would do is they would hold the seam up so that you get it like a gentle outswinger. So it looked like it was drifting, right? But um, uh, when it landed, instead of spinning back after you've got the ball to drift away, it would go straight forward. But that is an easier ball to pick. What most off spinners probably do now is if they're if they're bowling their off spin instead of coming. Um, uh, you know, either on that angle or uh, on that angle, it's a freaking podcast, Jared. <laughs> Instead of coming uh, with with the ball on on a, on a um, on a diagonal angle and, and then spinning that way, which is the one where you get top spin, or coming completely uh, around the side of that ball, uh, which is where you're getting pure um, uh, um, uh, side spin. So those are the two options. A lot of spinners now will do more of an underspinning um, delivery. And the, the idea of that is you, you can get, still get that ball to go straight, but it look, still looks like it's, re, uh, um, uh, it's got revolutions on it, but it will skid through a little bit straighter. Um, the carom ball... I'm sorry. I used to be able to bowl the carom ball. Uh, but the carom ball is a ball that you flick out the front. So essentially, there's no huge way of of um, hiding it, but what you want it to do is as you're coming over for it to look as much like you're going to spin it this way as you're going to spin it that way. Um, and that was always the sort of the trick with the carom ball. And the, the big thing with the carom ball is that a lot of players can't do it without these little antenna up, right? So um, Ajanta Mendes was caught by having his fingers up. So that was in the days of BlackBerry Messenger, probably the first time that the digital world played a part in, um, in a bowler getting worked out, which was they all just BlackBerry messaged each other to go. I, I, I heard it was Ross Taylor, but I don't know if, if he was the first one to work it out or the first one just to send the messages. But Ross Taylor messaged a couple of other batters to say when he's bowling the Karen ball, you can see his finger above the ball. Right? A lot, of, But if you look at a lot of guys who bowl the Karen ball now, they're like trying to keep those fingers down. Um, you can change the the grip of the ball so you'll see some spinners will come in and they'll have a really obvious grip and then as they go to bowl it they will actually change the way that they are holding the ball and the best way is because a lot of batters traditionally would read the spin of the ball right and that was because spinners would traditionally always keep the seam really straight because the idea was you wanted the ball to hit the seam so that it would spin further now the best way to bowl spin is really probably something more like this, where when you spin it, the seam is just going to get completely jumbled up, which means that it gives you two advantages. One, the ball might go straight on because it might hit the shiny side and just skid more. And two, if it does hit the seam, it might then rip um, and, and surprise it. So you're a little bit like the wobble ball. You're not even 100% sure what that ball is going to do. But the added advantage to that is once the seam is all jumbled, jumbled up, it is much harder for players to read the ball through the air and work out which way it is spinning. Um, and especially now bowlers bowl quicker. So I hope I nailed that, James. If James, if you only listen to the podcast, you might need to see the YouTube of that. Um, but it's a very fascinating um, situation. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else they might do. Um, yeah, I mean, the idea of most of these balls, so the deucera obviously doesn't really exist anymore, but uh, the idea of the deucera and the wrong end is essentially to try and mimic as much as possible what the standard delivery looks like, but get the ball to go the other way, All right? Karen ball's probably slightly different than that, and the knuckle ball's slightly different than that. Uh, this is James again. Some bowlers through history have been spoken as often bowling well without reward, with the implication that other bowlers in their team are reaping these rewards. Brian Statham, Jason Gillespie come to mind. Is this a real phenomenon? And is it more than just luck? And if so, what causes it? So I always had this theory that Ishant Sharma bowled slightly too short. And it's probably because he bowled in-swing. And when you bowl in-swing, you, you, you collapse your action a little bit. And so that drags the ball down. And I always had this theory that he just bowled too short. And I think you can go back some of my writing around 2013, 2014, when I didn't really have that access to analytics or anything. I was saying a very similar thing. And so his best ball would beat the bat. Um, and if it did take an edge, it would often take an inside edge and would go past the wicketkeeper. But he didn't get as many bold and LBWs as he should have. 
Um, and uh, when he did get an edge, it was an inside edge, and there wasn't a slip fielder there to be able to catch it. I do think there's an element of this with certain bowlers. Um, my memory of Gillespie was that Gillespie, if you look at Gillespie compared to, um, if you look at Gillespie compared to McGrath, I always felt that Gillespie's slips catches went low and were harder to catch. You know, and this was something that Stuart Broad also talked about that you know he he felt like he got a lot of drops off his bowling compared to other bowlers. And I, I think that's relatively true. I, I know I've looked this up before and I forgot. Whereas Neil Wagner didn't, right? But Neil Wagner's catches weren't going to slips, and um, and and Broads do. So quite often, bowlers who take get a lot of chances to go to slips get a lot of drops. Whether that means that they get fewer wickets than other bowlers, I don't know. Uh, but you know, you look at a bowl. You, you talk about Brian Statham. I think um, you would also have someone like Mike Hendrick in that who. Mike Henrik was the sort of bowler who was always there, there and about, but probably never ha- never took a lot of big hauls. And Jay- late career Jason Gillespie probably falls into that as well. I would say those are bowlers who completely kept the pressure on and their best ball was very good, but maybe they had a flaw that ultimately kept them back from being as wicket-taking as some of the other players um, above them. And the ability to be able to keep pressure on at all times. You know, Peter Siddles, maybe another bowler like this, is still really, really important. Um, if you look at the best test bowlers of all time, they are usually outlier freaks in in a few different ways. And if you look at really good, solid workhorse bowlers, you know, Hendrick Statham, certainly late career, or, you know, middle middle to late career, Gillespie when he loses his pace, um, uh, Peter Siddle, I just said there, um, those sorts of bowlers, they don't have maybe one um, exceptional skill that allows them to consistently take wickets. So when Gillespie was young, he was tall, but he never, I wouldn't say he ever made a lot out of his bounce compared to McGrath. He was really fast and he could move the ball. As he gets older, he could move the ball and was relatively accurate and obviously quite a clever bowler. Um, but I don't know if he had the elite skills that he might have had when he was young. So if his career path continues from when he's young, He's probably not on your list, right? And I'm trying to think of someone else that would be, it would be fair to have on that kind of list. Um, hmm. So someone like, maybe someone like, I was trying to think, is Merv Hughes count? Um, it probably doesn't. There must be a New Zealand bowler I'm blanking on. But I think if you go back and you break down their game, the difference between them and the elite bowlers is probably, you know, those one or two high-end exceptional skills like Shoah Bakhtar's pace or um, uh, Wazam Akram's ability to swing the ball both ways, um, Kirtley and McGrath's ability to seam the ball both ways and have that and have the extra bounce, whatever it may be. I wonder if some of these bowls, that was the thing that they didn't have, but they can land the ball roughly where they need to. Their best balls are troubling the best players, um, and they're always keeping pressure on. Whether they're really bowling for the guys at the other end or not, I don't know. But I think there's, I think what you're really talking about is just those bowl, level of bowlers who are just slightly below that sort of all-time great level, but they're still above average. Like I would have thought almost all the bowlers that I've discussed so far would have averaged under 32, which is kind of you know, the average uh, that you want to be. And really for a CME, you probably want to be under under 30. Um, and so most of those guys would have been under 30. I know obviously some of them, you know, quite a lot, long way under 30. But um, that would be my guess is that they're absolutely fantastic. The, on- the only one there that I would have thought could have been, um, you know, could have been a great and certainly had times when he was arguably Australia's best bowler with Warner McGrath around was Gillespie. But if you look at Statham, like he still ends up with, um, 252 wickets at 25, right? Like those those numbers, uh, it, well, how many years did he played? 14 years? That's like Courtney Walsh-like numbers. And Courtney Walsh, again, is not as exciting as Kirtley Ambrose and not quite as good a bowler as Kirtley Ambrose, all things considered. But those are two absolutely fantastic bowlers. And Gillespie averages 25. But maybe there was one thing missing that the other guys had um, in their era that, you know, that they bowled with. But also, if you had Courtney Walsh bowling for the West Indies now... You, I don't know if you'd be, oh, and or if you had Statham bowling for England in the nineties. I don't think you'd be making that the same comments because those guys would then be great bowlers in their eras. So some of it has to be how we look at them compared to the guys at the other end. Oops, missed a question. Ali says, "Is Imran Khan the most popular cricketer outside of cricket now?" 
Well, I can't think of another cricketer that people would actually have to go to the lengths of, um, of of slandering his name. So yeah, he probably still is the most popular cricketer outside of cricket now. Like, it, it's I, I don't think people. Where are the other cricketers who are, you know, as as um as I mean, maybe most popular is an interesting one, but uh, you know, he's incredibly famous, right? Like on a, just on a different level, like. American politicians know who Imran Khan is and you know, he's mentioned in geopolitics and everything else. Like, you know, as far as popular, I'm trying to think who would be, who would be the most popular cricketers ever in history. I suppose Bradman, Sachin, Imran, Sobers. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else I'm missing off that list. Um, you know, they're sort of universally loved quite, type players um they would go up there but yeah clearly Imran Khan's having some issues at the moment and um uh, let's see how that all goes uh, <laughs> it's not the first I mean almost ever since he's gone into politics like that's kind of what happens if you go into politics right like mud will be thrown at you and sometimes you will earn that mud and sometimes you won't and uh dirty laundry and uh, and slander and every bad thing you've ever said will be rehashed and all those sorts of things. That's, you know, kind of why most of us don't go into politics, I would assume. Plus we didn't captain Pakistan in the 1992 World Cup. Those are the two reasons most of us have not gone into politics. A quick break here uh, on the wagon wheel and we'll be back in a moment. Thanks to the kind folks at FlexiSpot for looking after my office and my butt by sending me their E7 Pro desk that save your favorite desk heights at a touch of a button. You don't have to crank anything. This thing just finds the height that you like and you can work. And their BS12 Pro chair that supports my posterior while I'm recording, well, this ad and all my shows. If you need great desks, especially ones that change heights or the best quality chairs, head on over to FlexiSpot. All right. Welcome back to Back Wheel. Jared Kimber here. Vivek says, in case cricket does split, either into men's, women's or formats or both, who is most likely to be initiating that process? Does it have to come from the players' unions? Because what else could possibly cause the governing entities to go against their self-interest? Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, well, the players' unions probably not powerful enough in cricket because they don't have the Asian teams. Um, I would say women's cricket, it will come from the women directly of them going, we could run this better than the men could, um, which would be hilarious because that's where they started. Uh, and they and women's cricket would be run a lot better if it was run for women or not. Yeah, if it was run for women, I was going to say by women, but it doesn't necessarily need to be by women. It needs to be for people who have women's cricket's best interest in heart, which is not the how women's cricket is currently run. Um, I would have assumed that if it, if it splits off into the other formats of men's cricket, hmm, I'm trying to work out how that would work, how, how that would happen directly. I would have thought that the most likely case of that would be someone going, wait a minute, there's still a lot of money to be made from test cricket or ODI cricket. And I would have thought it would be like an independent entity who would come in. And that's essentially what almost happened the first time uh, with the Rebel Leagues um, that, uh, you know, ZTV and, and Lalit Modi were involved with. Um, so, yeah, I do think there is an, I do think that is a part of, um, uh, yeah, no, I do, I do believe that that, um, could happen. Um, governing bodies, governing bodies split them up. Yeah, I could kind of see a future where, where I mean, there are a lot of people who are involved in cricket administration who don't like T20 cricket, right? Um, and there are a lot of people in cricket administration who do love T20 cricket. And I'm using T20 as the most extreme part of this. But I could see an argument to be made for splitting them up that could come from the governing bodies themselves. I think it's still more likely to be someone independent coming in and going, I'm going to run a test cricket league and we're just going to buy all the best test players and pay them a lot of money. And, you know, and that's how things would go. So I do think that is probably that. So when you say, is it in the best interest of the governing bodies to go against our self-interest? Well, I think they would make a claim. Some of those bodies at the moment, they're not really making any money off. So right at the moment, test cricket really doesn't make any money from vast majority of the boards. ODI cricket does make money for the boards, but only because of the World Cup. And otherwise, it actually makes less money than Test cricket. Um, so once T20 cricket takes over um, as the most important World Cup, and maybe we don't even have a 50-over World Cup, which is obviously on the cards, if not, you know, 
it's not like 100%, but I wouldn't be betting that we're going to have five more 50 over tournaments, um, uh, World Cup tournaments. Uh, I just wouldn't put my money on that at all. So if we get to the point where T20 cricket pays uh, the most money in franchise leagues and internationally, you could see then a split off with the boards of just going, well, okay, but we still think we can make um, it work on the side. So I do think the boards could do it. You could have a split there. Um, but I think it's more likely to be the women as a whole just going, we could run this better. We want to run it our way. Um, and um, some sort of independent person coming in and going, I still think I can make money off 50 over cricket or I still think I can make money off test cricket and here's my business plan and I'm going to go buy the best players in the world. I think those are the most likely options for me at the moment. I'm probably missing a couple of obvious ones. But Bloody Bugger says, most people agree that banning South Africa in 1970 was the right decision. However, most people don't think Afghanistan should be banned today. Why? John Arlett could um, scout Dolavira because non-whites could play in a separate league. Amiga, right, that Afghan women don't have. Um, also, did South Africa receive money from the ICC back then? Uh, so let's answer the final question. Uh, South Africa formed the ICC. It, it's basically their idea. Um, uh, and then it, it eventually, I want to say it kicked them out, but it kind of didn't because they were kind of already gone by that point. Um, uh, so they formed the ICC. The ICC, as far as I'm aware, did not make any money in those days at all uh, because it wasn't running any tournaments. And I can't imagine how it could have made money. It wasn't selling merchandise. Um, it didn't own anything. So I would assume in those, in those days it was... It must have been funded by the major boards, I would have thought. Um, and they wouldn't have had much funding. Uh, so no, as far as I'm aware, South Africa wouldn't have received any money from the ICC back then. Um, uh, most people agree that banning South Africa in 97 was the right decision. Yes. I think the uh, it's a very similar situation to what's happening with the Afghanistan um, team. The one difference I would probably say is that Although it's weird, isn't it? I was trying to think. I don't know what level of popularity the Taliban have. Like how many people in the country actually don't agree with that particular rule. But then I thought about that and it's like, well, most people in the country wouldn't have agreed with the apartheid rule. It's just that most of them couldn't vote on it. So it is quite a similar in that in that way. Um, uh, I'm not sure. It, the big difference with cricket uh, in, in sorry, the big difference with South Africa cricket was that tennis had already distanced themselves from them. The Olympics had already distanced themselves from them. Rugby had already had issues with them. Whereas in, Af in cricket, it's kind of on its own with Afghanistan. And if you look, cricket wasn't a particularly... A I mean, it's funny you talk about banning them in 1970. They weren't banned. I don't think people know this. No one banned South African cricket, like in 1970. Um they were still due to play a test match series in Australia after 1970, right? Australia withdrew that option. Was it 71, 72, I think? 70, 71, I can't remember. Whenever the World 11 played in Australia. Australia withdrew that offer. That's why South Africa didn't play. Um, so, and you know, and you still had things like um, the Women's World Cup was almost hosted there. They almost had um, a team in the women's world in the 1973 World Cup that was going to play under an independent name, but actually be South African. Um, you had the Dave, uh, they were still playing in the Davis Cup at times of tennis um, in the 1970s. Um, I'm trying to think of some other things. So, you know, the actual ban of cricket wasn't really a ban. What actually happened is that people just stopped playing them. Um, that could happen now. Right. Australia's already decided not to play um, Afghanistan in bilaterals. Every other country in the world can make that same decision. That's what happened, right? Um, it was a little bit more different before because South Africa were refusing to play the West Indies, India, and Pakistan already. So they kind of half banned themselves, if we're being honest there. Uh, that was like a good chunk of um, the teams that were available. That's like 50% of the teams that they had uh, available to play against at that time. Uh, so I do think that that was, that was an issue. Um, I'm trying to think of what else, uh, that I mean by this. Uh, so it is a different situation, right? I think that's fair. And, and you pointed out some other differences there that, that are also very, very fair. I think the issue here is the ICC have a regulation that says that you need to promote your women's team, um, and you need to get them, uh, correct. And obviously that is not what is happening under the ACB as it currently stands. So the ICC do have a reason to ban the Afghanistan men's team. I think, though, for a lot of us, we—if you look at the the 
in South Africa at that time, the populace, so I'm talking about, you know, the vast majority of the people were not white and they actually supported the touring teams. They didn't get joy out of the South African cricket team playing, um, playing cricket. They actually got joy out of them losing, right? You know, you, you talk to pl- people back in those days, there was a lot of that going on. This Afghanistan population do get joy out of this team. It does represent them. It gives them a chance to be on the world stage in something that they're really, really good at. I still think we might get to a point where they have to be threatened with a ban um, and we'll, we will see what they do then. We've already seen them fold once with the, uh, with the IOC. So I would suggest that cricket should be threatening them with a ban. And if it continues to go on for a long period of time, then, you know, it, cricket has to make a decision. This, this is kind of what we, you know, we talked about in the video and in the podcast, I think, that we did on it. Um, at a certain point, we need to make a decision. Do we actually care about this, about, you know, ensuring that there is a women's team or not, right? And you would have to say at the moment, we have said no. A large part of this goes back to the 1970s that you're talking about, though, and is still relevant today. The ICC doesn't feel comfortable about kicking a team out for this kind of stuff. And it doesn't feel comfortable for that because, as we all know, there is many different things that a lot of different cricket boards don't do uh, to follow the charter. Um, you know, and to, to, to you know, they're not open uh, uh, with certain things. Um, you know, there's political inf- interference in multiple countries, uh, not just in Asia either. Um, you know, all these different things are happening in cricket at all times. Um, and the ICC, you know, when the ICC kicked out Sri Lanka cricket board, and, and we know that Sri Lanka cricket board were in on that, but even when they did it, they got so much flack from people who go, well, what about all the other stuff that you haven't done? That will happen, but tenfold if they kick out the entire Afghanistani men's team. It's also one of the best stories to ever happen to cricket. Um, so it's awkward, right? Uh, but sorry, international. Um, if your sport is international, there's going to be awkward shit. You've got to deal with it, right? And at the very least, they have to threaten them with a ban, right? If if that's the only thing that's going to change them, go. If you want to play in the next World Cup, uh, that's fine. But we need to see that you have an international women's team, right? And if it is, if it is, is expats because that's how politically works in that country. It's more of a a a, a figure of a team rather than a, a realistic team. We all, or you know, that may be the best that we can get out of that administration as it currently stands. But it, it is tough. I do think there are a lot of people who do think they should be bland though, bloody. But yeah, it, it is. A, I think it is slightly different because you, South African people who weren't you know, well, non-white South African people were not getting pleasure out of that team, whereas everyday Afghanistanis are getting pleasure out of that team. That doesn't mean that there isn't women um, that that are maybe frustrated that the men get to play and they don't get to play. I think that that would certainly be the case as well, would be my guess. Um, and hopefully we'll hear more of that side of things as things go on. I'd be fascinated to talk to the women as well who, uh, you know, th- these, what is it, 22, 23 women who are in Australia who might form this independent Afghanistan women's team, what they think about it, right? I'm not sure they need to be banned, of course. I think the money is there. And if if in your, if if to get full t- um, test match status, you have to say that you are developing women's cricket, then the ICC just go, okay, well, if you're not going to do it, we just take a chunk of that money and we do it. But again, I think they're worried about the precedent stuff. And, you know, they're a nervous organization because... When it comes down to it, everything we talk about in cricket is the truth is uh, no one really runs cricket. And that's why we get situations like this. And that's why South Africa were not banned, but people just stopped playing them, which is a very, very different thing and very key to remember. All right, uh, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll have a look. Well, actually, slightly longer break. So I need to find some stuff from the chat room um, to see what people have got. So if you've got some questions, quickly wang them in. I'm Jared Kimber, and this is Wagon Wheel. All right, uh, we've got a bunch of questions, so I'll try and rattle through them. Thank you to Rahul and Samit for their um, super chats, uh, but I'll get to them in a moment. Rahul's got a really interesting one, actually. Uh, Anwesh says, how have basic batting techniques evolved over the decades? It appears to me that even the average player's front foot defense 40 years ago was quite lacking straight bat and footwork compared to now. Um well, the big difference is the players used to get a long way forward because you weren't given out LBW and that actually doesn't help anymore because you'll still be given out LBW because of DRS. And also we used to go on the sort of that, um, 
the MCC coaching manual. So a lot of very high elbow and, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas I think batting now is much more trained around what is effective and what works for you. You know, the, the MCC coaching manual doesn't exist anymore, right? And and the way that we coach batting and uh, it has changed massively. So if you go back, you do see a lot of forward defenses. It's funny that you talk about um, the average player's front foot defense from 40 years ago was quite lacking with a straight bat, but it was a forward defense, right? It, if you know, look now, they just gently rock onto the front, uh, onto the, you know, uh, more players now, they gently rock onto the front or gently rock onto the back. They don't take a massive stride forward um, or that massive stride back that they used to take either. So I think those are the things that have changed. Um, Probably the flick is the most important shot in international cricket. And that's not even a shot that was taught uh, before. You know, just that ability that when the ball's a little bit too straight to just uh, uh, turn your hands on it. That exists in old cricket, but is way more prevalent now than ever before. Um, so I think those are, those are the obvious changes. Um, but yeah, I think I think now that the it's a lot more about balance and where you're um, and and playing the ball under your eyes, whereas I think before it was meeting the ball and trying to smother the spin or smother the swing and those sorts of things, or going right back. Um, and and again, you sort of when players play back now, have a look at them. You look at someone like Joe Root. He's a back foot player. He doesn't often go back. His weight is just slightly on the back foot. And you can see that starting to come through in the 70s and 80s. Um, uh, and uh, as bowls have got faster, you can't, you know, make huge movements in, in those sorts of ways um, that people used to. So I think it's probably more that sort of steady base. Um, so I think I think that makes sense. Uh, Rahul says, who was your favorite West Indies fast bowler from the 70s and 80s? And who was the best? Uh, mine was Kirtley Ambrose. I was kind of a little bit too young for the rest. Um, uh, well, him and Courtney and, and Ian Bishop uh, with the three that I sort of grew up on. Um, I used to try and bowl like Kurtley in the backyard. Um, so I've been lucky enough to commentate with him and talk to him about the fact I used to do that. Um, I loved watching him bowl. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if Kurtley or McGrath was a better bowler, but I, I, like, I really love watching Kurtley bowl uh, more than I did McGrath, even if they were actually quite similar in some ways. Um, who's the best? That gets tricky. Okay. Old heads will tell you that Malcolm Marshall is the best and he has the best average of any of the test bowlers. And I've seen enough footage of him to know that he could swing the ball both ways, seam it both ways, really accurate and obviously high pace and had a skiddy Dale Stain-like bouncer. Joel Garner has almost an identical record to Malcolm Marshall, but better in ODIs, but almost identical in test cricket. And bold first change. Now, the difference between people who take the new ball and the second ball, it's like four or five runs. Um, sorry, the new ball and the old ball. It's like four or five runs um, when you compare it. Um, if someone who bowls first change compared to someone who bowls um, with the new ball. So to have a bowling average of around 20 when you did a vast majority of your work from first change I've said this before. I think Joel Garner might be one of the best bowlers of all time. And I don't think that means he's more skillful than Marshall. I think it means that he bowled probably around 90 miles an hour from six foot six in an era when those two things were very rare on their own, let alone in one package. He was obviously a very clever bowler as well. Um, you know, uh, had a great Yorker. You couldn't, you couldn't force him away. Um, so I, I, I'm pretty confident that Joel Garner was probably slightly more impactful than Malcolm Marshall, but Ma I think Malcolm Marshall was the more skillful um, uh, of that of that whole unit. I think he was the most skillful of all of them. Maybe he had to be because he was shorter than them too. He didn't have that extra skill. Caribbean Cricket Podcast, those bums. There was a lot of congratulatory, um, isn't this good for world cricket in Aussie media after the West Indies drew the test series, but will there be real introspection as to how they lost the test at home to us? Um... I think a lot of Australian cricket coverage is probably story-based until there's an Ashes or a Home World Cup where they lose. And then they suddenly suddenly start looking up stats and analytics and – well, not analytics, but, you know, start looking up um, things uh, to say, oh, this team is, isn't very good, or uh, usually they say they're soft. Um, you know, the, the tough men in the old days, they ne never lost a game, except for the times when they regularly did. Um, so I would say that – 
Yeah, West Indies cricket has a, has a different part in Australian history than it does, it's say, English history um, and perhaps New Zealand history and everything else. They were the team that Australia had to overcome to be the best again. We don't have a lot of West Indian or Caribbean people in Australia. Like, it's a really small population. Australians don't go for holidays generally in the Caribbean because we have beaches ourselves or there are closer beaches to us um, available. So we really, it is a cricket relationship where that is not the that is not the case with say England and the Caribbean. Um, and so I do think they thought it was a great story. Australia has won so much recently, maybe they can let the one loss go. But if you're looking at it from the cold dead heart that I know Michelle and Santoki have, um, I can certainly see from that perspective why they should be looking at it a little bit of, wait a minute, we just won a World Test Championship. And now we've lost to the West Indies. Is there something going on here? Um, but they just won a World Cup as well. And they've also now won the Under-19s World Cup. So generally, Australia really, if, if it's an Ashes or a Home World Cup, or there's a lot of losses strung together, they're more interested. I don't think they'll be as worried about the one loss. Although I'm sure that when people have a go at Pat Cummins for being too woke, this one loss will come up again. Samit says, and thank you for the uh, super chat to him and Rahul. Uh, sports scientists are highlighting boots and balls created for male players to put. Uh, sports scientists are highlighting boots and balls created for male players put women at high risk of injury in football. Should cricket fraternity also look at designing specialized kit for women? This is uh, something I definitely agree with. Um, I don't think when I started writing cricket around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I never realized that women bats weren't made for women. So women either had to have the lightest possible bat that was designed for a man um, or they needed to – some women were using harrow bats because they were easier for them to use. And I know bat makers started making bats for women. And I think there are some companies that now do specialist bats and obviously the top pros are usually looked after and everything else. Um, but, yeah, I, so, yes, uh, I don't know if boots need to be changed for women, although I think women do bowl biomechanically slightly different. I've talked about that before. Um, you know, I don't know if there's a way to prove it, but I do feel that they get more in-swing than out-swing uh, when compared to men. And I do think that has something to do with the biomechanics. And I know I've talked to women's coaches who say other things about spinners. Like I'll say something, oh, this this woman looks really good, but I don't know if her you know, our action is biomechanically sound. And they'll say, we've never tested uh, women's actions biomechanically. We don't know what biomechanically sound means for a woman. I'm like, oh my God, of course we haven't. I am comparing it to a man, which is a different physical structure. Um, so yes, uh, certainly bats and um, uh, bats and boots. I would have thought would be the obvious ones. Obviously, the balls are already slightly different, um, a little bit smaller. Um, but yeah, th those are the those are the, the kind of the the main reasons. Arco says, "What happened to spinners in the 1980s? There are barely any great spinners to know. Everyone talks about Abdul Qadir, but his numbers look pretty average. What am I missing here? I think Abdul Qadir was great. Like." I, I, I think I was a bit like you when I, I went back and had a look at it because what's the average? 32. Um, remember, he bowled on Pakistani wickets. <laughs> so you do have to factor that in. Um, some of the flat, probably some of the flattest wickets in the world. Uh, let's have a look here. Uh, just have a look at how he went when he went to other places. Had an average of 27. Um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't dominate anywhere outside of Pakistan, though, um, to be fair. But he was a very masterful bowler. His record is actually very similar to Anil Kumble. Um, but yes, your, your wider question is, I, and I can tell you what happened. We were still playing on largely uncovered wickets in the you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then in the 80s, two things happened. But the 80s, covered wickets are pretty much used everywhere. And certainly the pitches had changed. Um, and you have um, also you have the West Indies coming through. So I think the combination of those two things are massive. So if you go back... Arco, and you have a look at the best bowlers from Australian history and English history, you'll find tons and tons of spinners before 1980, right? It goes back a little bit further with Australia because their wickets, I think, changed a little bit earlier than, than um, England did. But if you go back, um, where, um, uh, South Africa is the same. So South Africa, Australia, and England used to spin a lot. And, you know, first-class cricket, spinners were quite dominant. And, you know, Clary Grimmett took the most wickets in the world and Hugh Tayfield had the most wickets in the world and Bill O'Reilly was the best bowler in the world. These are all Australian spinners. England, you know, uh, 
Laker and Underwood and Locke and all these guys, you know, fantastic bowlers. Um, South Africa had, um, my God, I forgot. I know the old leg spinners, but also that, they had a great um, finger spinner whose name I've also forgotten. Oh, no, Hugh Tayfield is South African. Hugh Trumbull is Australian. Sorry, I got those two mixed up, I think, before. Um, so plenty, all these spinners come through. And then when we get to covered wickets, spinners fall apart a little bit more. Um, and the pitches get harder. They get better for people banging the ball into the surface. Um, seam bowling completely takes over in all those different markets. So I think that plays a big part because quite clearly um, India still had good spinners, although their crop of spinners maybe wasn't as strong in the 80s. Um, but we know by the 90s they've got good spin again, and in the 70s they had good spin. Then you start to get the spinners who rip the ball sideways on hard wickets, you know, Murali and Warren. Um, and then on the back of that, we also get those kinds of specialist sort of Asian spinners. So what would you put in there? Harath, Ashwin, Jadeja type spinners, because there's so much cricket now being played in Asia. And then you also get the DRS, uh, you know, which you would put, you know, Graham Swan, maybe at that, the head of that kind of, um, thing where you, you, you suddenly have, um, all those sort of things, uh, happening. Um, so yeah, so, um, that's the change, uh, that we start to see. Um, and, uh, I would assume all those things sort of come together. You do have to realize how popular the West Indies were and how much everyone pivoted to pace because they wanted to be like them. You know, we've seen that sort of stuff before we're seeing it with baseball again now. Like sometimes a trend just takes over, but I do think the wickets played a huge part in that. And just because before the, the wickets were a little bit different. So I would say for the wickets he played on, Abdul Qadir was probably a pretty good bowler. In uh, Sorry, a great bowler in the same way that for the wickets that Anil Kumble played on, he was probably a great bowler but they maybe weren't perfectly suited to the wickets that were, you know, that, that cricket was moving towards at that time. Whereas I think Warren and Murali probably were. And then you get Ashwin, Swan, Harath, um, I'm missing some of the others, Ajmal, who are perfect for the DRS era. Um, and, uh, you know, that, so they came along at a time when it's easier. Like if Abdul Qadir and Anil Kumble had DRS and bowled the exact same way, I still think they would have been absolutely fantastic. Whereas, you know, Warner Murali had to change with DRS. So all these things do play a part. Uh, let's just take a quick break and uh, then we'll come back and we'll finish off the rest of the super chats and all, and all the chats. I'm Jared Kimber and this is The Wagon Wheel. Uh, welcome back to Wagon Wheel. Jared Kimber here. Quirty says, is there a technical reason for late swing or is it more to do with the pace? Um, no, it's more to do with wrist position. So most people who swing the ball just swing it like a like a boomerang sort of. Well, not boomerang, it doesn't come back to you, but like, like on the arc of the actual shape of the boomerang, right? So it starts to swing out of your hand um, and then curves around, right? That's sort of the more traditional way of swinging. Whereas the better you have your wrist, the ball will go as straight for as long as possible. So there's a name for this in baseball. I think it's called tunneling where the pitchers try and get the ball to go as straight for as long as possible and then start to veer off. That's why the wobble ball is so effective. It's essentially what the wobble ball does, right? Um, and so that's essentially what swing bowling, a swing, great swing bowlers try and do. So if you look at someone like Richard Hadley and you compare him to, say, uh, a, a more average swing bowler, more average swing bowler, the ball will start to swing out of their hand and you see it really, really early. And that means the batter can adjust a little bit to it. Whereas with Richard Hadley, it's coming fairly straight and then it starts to veer off, you know, just before it bounces. Um, so that's probably uh, the difference. Late swing, uh, you know, the pace of which you swing the ball matters because obviously the slower you bowl, um, the more it swings. Uh, but, you know, there's a kind of a magic period, right, where, you know, maybe you can swing the ball quite a bit around 88 miles an hour, let's say. Um, and that, but, because that little bit of movement will feel like it is later because it has come to you quicker, if, if that makes sense. So it's not so much late swing in that, if you're talking about the extra pace, what you're really talking about there is the fact that it is swinging at pace and it is harder for the batter to actually make a decision on it. Because once it goes, once the ball moves more than two or three inches, uh, you know, a batter has to make a lot of decisions. So the quicker that you can move the ball at those inches, whether it's spin or pace, uh, the harder it is for the batter. I think I've explained that right. But but yeah, the, what you really want to be able to do is get the ball to go. So I can swing a ball really easily, outswing. But my mine is big hooping outswing. So I, I if I bowl it from really wide on the crease, it can it causes like an optical illusion <laughs> to the batter. But once they get used to that amount of swing, 
it's quite easy for them to play. Whereas my father bowls out swingers where it just feels like the ball's coming dead straight to you. And just before it starts to bounce, you start see it start to veer off and you've got no time. So it doesn't matter if I bowl quicker than him or not, the batter is still going to be able to pick up what I'm doing. Natash says, how do you think Boomer will go after three or four years when he loses a couple of yards of pace? Will his extraordinary skill set still be good enough at 130 k's an hour? Yeah, well, when he's 130, he'll still be 135, right? Um, so he'll still be quite good. Um just because he bowls from closer to than other batters. Uh, he, he could swing the ball. He could seam the ball. He bowls incredible um, cutters. He still gets odd bounce because of his action. All of those things should be handy, and he will be smarter, right? I, I could see how he could age quite well in a way that Jimmy Anderson aged quite well, right? Um, in a way that Glenn McGrath and Curtly Ambrose aged quite well. He'll be a different kind of bowler then, and you know, he will probably get met a little bit more in limited overs cricket would be my guess. And teams will get on top of him a little bit more, but having that, those amount of skills available to him. And I'm assuming in three or four years time, he's developing more or mastering more as well. Um, should keep him in pretty good stead to age. You know, he's not just an, he's not a bowler who just needs extra pace. Right. Um, he's got, if think of Lassif Malinga, Lassif Malinga was properly quick when we first saw him. And by the end of his career, he wasn't that quick. But he was still really useful because of the, the things that he could do still were so exceptional that people couldn't handle them. Boomerash still has a lot of those available to him. And last uh, one, uh, Super Chat from No One Knows. I was debating with someone saying how quick, um, saying how West Indies quicks were all bowling near 160. Me saying it's probably closer to 140s. So we've... <laughs> The most famous speed bowling test was done in late 70s, early 80s. And uh, it was done on for Australian TV. It's a brilliant product. And I know people who have tried to fund it and do it again and sell it as a TV package. Um, and sadly, uh, it's just, it's almost impossible. But, I, you know, one day the ICC should try and get this up and get a sponsor for it because it would be brilliant. But they brought out the 12 fastest bowlers in the world. My memory was that Tomo was clocked at 152Ks and the next best bowler was somewhere around 142, 143, which I think was Mikey Holding or maybe Andy Roberts. Um, and then and then we had bowlers bowling 128 kilometers an hour in that test. What someone like Jeff Lawson, who's obviously a fast bowler, would say is that that test is very different to how we test fast bowlers now and that all those speeds were depressed a little bit. Even if that was the case, are we really saying that Jeff Thompson was bowling 165 kilometers an hour and that still meant that the other bowlers were, there was only a couple of bowlers barely touching 90 miles an hour. So I would say that they certainly weren't bowling 160 kilometers an hour, the West Indian bowlers. I would say that Tomo probably bowled around that pace from what we can tell, um, you, but based on the test. And he was five to 10 kilometers quicker than anyone else. So there was probably Michael Holding, Andy Roberts bowling low 90s. Um, and then you might have had uh, Sylvester Clark um, and Colin Croft probably as well. Patrick Patterson probably touched low 90s. Maybe some of them got mid-90s as well. I, I think that's possible. Um, I don't think it's likely that they could do it anywhere near as consistently as Mark Wood or Unric Dorkia could. And now low 90s is not considered particularly fast. It's still fast, but there are a lot of bowls who bowl 90 miles an hour and don't always feel that fast. Um, so that's how much cricket has changed in that period. But if you were bowling... 88 miles an hour and everyone else is bowling 78 miles an hour, which was the case, right? Like we could see in that one speed test that there was a lot of guys not bowling particularly fast. Then 88 miles an hour would feel like 160 Ks. And that's the important thing to remember. Harold Larwood would have felt like facing Shoa Bakhtar, right? Because they had no other frame of reference other than Harold Larwood was a yard quicker than everyone else. Right, and all the way through, uh, Charlie McCartney and uh, his bowling partner, whose name I've forgotten, all those guys, right, who were a yard quicker than everyone else, would have felt like Shoa Bakhtar, Sean Tate, Anrik Nokia, Mark Wood, Jofra Archer, name them, right, because they were a yard quicker than everyone else, and that's the thing that is worth remembering. And there's no way that all the West Indian bowlers were that quick because we have some speed data of them, and the next generation of bowlers who were being talked about just as quick, right. When they came out and we had speed guns, they weren't nowhere near those speeds, right? So, look, there's there's obviously some flawed science in all of this. And I, it, for me, it doesn't matter. Like, Bill O'Reilly was a quick spinner in his day, and everyone said that. But if Bill O'Reilly bowled now, I don't think he would be considered a quick spinner. Bisham, go and watch Bisham Beatty. Bisham Beatty would be the world's slowest spinner by 10 kilometers right now if he bowled, right? But 
that's just what, that's how cricket was developing. Different bowlers in different conditions. You know, some reasons, there were reasons for certain countries to bowl faster and everything else. West Indies and Australia and Pakistan are certainly three places that probably have that. South Africa as well. There are other reasons why other bowlers don't go fast. There maybe maybe Harold Larwood on his best day could bowl a ball at 90 miles an hour, but he certainly didn't bowl consistently at 90 miles an hour because everyone stands on the shoulders of everyone else and pe- the game keeps moving forward. And unless you have an outlier action like Jeff Thompson, which no one else has ever nailed, um, that's not going to be the case. So, you know, I've talked about this a lot and I don't, there's a lot of old people, uh, they're like old te- and they'll say, oh, what about this speed test of this bowler from whatever time or whatever? And I was like, you can watch them bowl. We can see that they're not bowling at 90 miles an hour from where the wicketkeeper is, is taking the ball, right? Or how close the wicketkeepers are. That doesn't mean that Harold Larwood wasn't quick for his time. He, he's, him and Fred Truman still deserve to be thought of as great fast bowlers. Just because if they bowled today, they would be fast medium or medium fast doesn't mean they weren't great fast bowlers in their time. Fred, most people on this podcast would probably go all right facing Fred Spoffus now. The man was called Demon. Right. Great question, though. Thank you very much to all the Super Chats and everything else. I am done for this wagon wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Um, we've got a Jasper Boomer video up on the site. We've obviously we've got an Ashwin coming. Uh, Ashwin one coming. We've got something on England and sweep shots coming up um, and some other stuff as well. Um, but please support us any way you can via Patreon, via Super Chats, via, I don't know, just telling your mum that she should would really enjoy our videos. All these things help. S- subscribe here, subscribe on our other channels, listen to our podcast, go to goodareas.co. Stalk me is really what I am saying here. Follow me around um, and tell me that I'm beautiful. Thank you for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are also many other extras as well, including a Discord channel where you can chat to me directly. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. We are an independent podcast, so support us any way you can. Maybe give us a review, subscribe, or share on social media. All of these things help us. And when it comes to podcasts, word of mouth is always the best way of making it grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Baron Kazi and Estelle Vasudevan. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston, and each episode is produced by Ishit Kaburka at Sound Potion Studio. Mukunda Bandredi, or Muku, as most people will know, is the head of our YouTube channels, and he also helps out with so many other things like the podcast recordings. And there's so many other people we could thank here, but I just want to thank all the listeners and all the people who help behind the scenes that make this podcast work. If you are a podcaster who happens to waffle on and you need a way to cut down your long-form content, Memento FM is here to save the day. They turn your lengthy media into bite-sized chunks for even the most time-starved audience. Start using Memento FM today.